Well, wonderful to be with you all again uh, this morning. Amanda and I are always delighted to be with you, and it's been lovely to have an extended period over the summer where we can keep returning. Um, before I bring God's word to us this morning, I'd just like to go to the Lord in prayer briefly one more time. Oh, Heavenly Father, we do need you. We need the every hour, and uh, I pray now that you would... Um, Give us your blessing and attend your word by your spirit, uh, that you'd instruct us, um, our our minds, our hearts, our wills, uh, to be conformed uh, to the very will of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, In the dark world around us, we can sometimes despair, and yet we have the light of your word. So I pray that you would encourage us, be merciful to our sinners though we are, and yet those who are covered by the blood of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Friends, if you keep your Bibles open to Jude, um, obviously I'm not going to preach every verse of it. We'd be here a long time, um, but I wanted us to hear this, the whole of the chapter uh, so that we get the real sense of, uh, of what's going on here. Because, friends, there, there is a conflict going on. There is a war against God and against God's people. And the greatest battle that we are in is the battle for truth. The attack on truth has manifested itself, particularly in our day and age, in the foundational truths of human sexuality and sexual ethics. So it's an attack on God's truth, and it's risen in our day in this particular area. And it's the same in every era. From the very beginning, uh, the serpent said, did God really say an attack on the truth of God, and it's risen in this particular area in our day and age. And under the pressure of an immoral culture, our conclusion has too often been that the Bible is insufficient to deal with sexual turmoil, rebellion, depression, or dysphoria that people experience and pursue. And so we've often adopted then the world's philosophies and these empty strategies to deal with it. Moreover, the greatest threat to the Christian church occurs actually not from the culture outside, but from the inside. When its own pastors and teachers deny those very truths that they've been entrusted to proclaim. And in our day, in this cosmic war, as it were, it's as if, imagine it's as if a Trojan horse has secretly entered the evangelical city And within this Trojan horse are contained erroneous teachings on sexuality, which then undermine significant doctrines, the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of grace and the very gospel itself. So, friends, we must prepare to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That that key verse there in the text. Before us, verse 3. Jude tells us here uh, four things that I'm going to zone in on. He tells us number one, who must contend. Number two, what we contend for. Number three, why we must contend. And number four, how we must contend. So, who, what, why, how. Nevertheless, before we dive into those kind of four things, Jude writes to us in the context of love. You just need to look at the beginning. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, 
and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace and love be multiplied to you. And then in verse 3, he refers to the church as beloved. Those to whom he writes here are identified within the life and love of the triune God. That's what he's hinting at here in in verse 1. They are called. They are called, that is, sovereignly, supernaturally, effectually called by the Holy Spirit. They are beloved of, of God the Father, that is, chosen in love by the Father. And they are kept, they are kept by Jesus Christ, even preserved by the hand of the risen Christ who unfailingly died for them. Father, Son, Spirit. You see, believers are called into and kept in that love and life of the triune God. And this is where it begins for us, friends, with the life and love of the triune God. And that's where we need to situate ourselves and realise that we are in that life and love of the triune God. And then there's this little threefold prayer here, isn't there? For mercy, peace and love to be multiplied. Verse 3. It's as if he's saying, you are beloved of God, And so I pray for more mercy, peace and love to be extended to you so that you may extend this in your ministry because you'll need it. You'll need it as you contend for the faith. Telling people to contend for the faith, you see, is not against the idea of love. In fact, Paul says, doesn't he, elsewhere, that love rejoices in the truth. And so Jude says, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And so here are some lessons from Jude to help us contend for the faith in that area of sexuality in particular. Lesson one is this. We are all called to contend. We are all called to contend. That's the who. We are all called to contend. All are called to contend. That's every Christian in here today. Every Christian in here is to contend. You see, he's speaking to the beloved, that is, to the church, not to a special class of, you know, Christian ninjas, you know, who have got all the, the skills and, and, and can out-theologise out anyone and out-debate their opponents. You know, if you're like me, you're kind of, you're great at making the case, aren't you, and having, having these debates in your mind, and then when it, it comes to it in front of other people, you get tongue-tied and you stumble over your words and uh, but, but he's calling us, he's calling us the, the tongue-tied stumblers. It's the ones who are called, beloved, kept by the triune God. That's whom he addresses, as our brother Michael prayed, uh, 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 frail people like us. That's you and that's me. See, contending is not about being gifted. It's about being called. If you're called, then contend you must. What is it to contend? Well, this word contend in the Greek is epagonitsestai. Imagine saying that this time in the morning and getting it right. Epagonitsestai. To agonise, you see, that, that word agonise. Agonitsestai. It denotes wrestling in like hand-to-hand combat. It's a military or an athletic term. That's, uh, it's got the sense of an intense struggle. That's one reason why it's easy to turn away from contending, you see, because it's hard. It's, it's not easy. And so then, if you are to contend and you know that it's hard, you need to know the grace of God for you. You need to know you're beloved. 
And you need to know his supply for you. Mercy, peace and love will be multiplied to you. It's going to be the the, the fuel or, or, or the oxygen in your tank as you contend. See, brothers and sisters, sometimes we can get uh, weary or even apathetic towards the struggle to contend for truth and to contend for these creation truths on manhood and, and womanhood in the face of a radical LGBTQ agenda out there that is surrounding us and in every area of life. So we need to be reminded of the necessity of the battle, the supply that we are promised, and that some things are worth fighting for. And that every Christian is called to contend. So that's the who. Who is to contend? Everyone that is a Christian is to contend. Lesson two, we contend for the faith. That's the what. We contend for the faith. To contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The faith. Now, here he's not speaking necessarily of your personal faith that you exercise, but the faith. The faith, this is the truth. This is sound doctrine. This is gospel truths. It's referred to down in verse 20 as the most holy faith. The holy scriptures, the apostolic doctrine of Ephesians 2, which is the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. And notice it is once for all delivered to the saints. That is signed, sealed, delivered, no more needed. There is objective truth, friends, and it is contained in this book, the Bible. It is contained in the Bible and it is sufficient. It is sufficient. This is doctrine. This is the doctrine of the Trinity, the incarnation of Christ, the doctrine of sin and grace, the doctrine of creation, the doctrine of man, and and a special focus on the gospel Itself. And notice, notice it's given. It's given to the saints. It's given to us, to the church, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so the point is, it's in here, in here, that this truth must be protected. It must be protected. And we can't let outside influences enter and affect our grip on the truth. Nowadays, truth doesn't matter. You know what matters to people? Authenticity matters. As long as I'm being true to my feelings and to myself, then I'm being real. You hear that, don't you? It's a desire, really, to pursue one's own path and find fulfilment through that identity. You see, in this worldview that's, that's out there, self-determination equals true freedom and liberty. You decide who you are and what you're going to do against tradition, against God's word, against your body even, and what your body's telling you. Today, one's identity lies in this self-fulfillment. Carl Truman, theologian, church historian, calls it expressive individualism. The individual self must be given room to express oneself so that sex and sexuality is not rooted in God's creation truth, male and female in his image and sex within the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman alone. No sex and sexuality are for selfish pleasure and not for God. As long as it's consensual, it is good and I'm being authentic. The connection between love and sex is not even necessary. Individual pleasure is the thing that is necessary. So sexual feelings there then are at the core 
identity of a person. And so if you repress them, you repress the person. The result is, when, with this kind of worldview, this lust runs wild and porn is rife. Cohabitation is a cultural norm. Same-sex attraction and transgender are considered acceptable and morally good. But thankfully, there is the truth. There is the faith, which is true whatever you feel or whatever anyone else thinks. We want to be united. But people say, don't they say, truth divides. Well, it does. Yes, it does. It divides those who will believe it from those who won't believe it. It has a dividing effect in that way. And then a uniting effect around the truth. And if you don't contend, you see, for this truth, for this faith, for the faith, the danger is you will compromise the faith. If you don't contend, the danger is you'll compromise. And we've, de- we've departed from these, these truths, these creation truths. And we've thus even been part of assaulting the glory of God even as he reflects his glory in creating us in the Imago Dei, in the image of God, male and female. We've taken sex and sexuality outside the bounds of the one flesh holy union of marriage between a man and a woman, meant for procreation and meant to lead us to adoration of Christ. And so we have lost order in the home. Why? Because we've not contended for the faith. The faith. So number one... We must all contend. That's the who. Who must contend? All of us who are Christians. Number two, we must all contend for the faith. That's the what. Now the why. Why must we contend? Well, we contend because of false teachers. You see it there in verse four. For, there's the reason, for certain people have crept in unnoticed. So the greatest and most subtle threat to the church is not persecution from the outside, it's false teachers from the inside. Remember that, it's not persecution from the outside, it's false teachers from the inside. It's an inside job. It's an inside job. And this is another part of what makes contending uh, difficult and and painful and agonizing. Because maybe we've known these people, maybe we've worked with them, maybe they've visited our churches, maybe we've bought their books. I just want us to to notice just three things about these false teachers. I want us to notice their subtlety, their character, and their judgment. First of all, their subtlety. Look, they've crept in unnoticed. They've slithered in subtly like a serpent, like the serpent in the garden. We didn't see them coming. We didn't see them coming. Interesting, you know, even as we think about this, um, the moral declaration, declension in the last few years how quickly it seems to have come upon us and increasing amounts but there's been a, a subtle slithering in then we didn't see it coming notice verse 12 they are hidden reefs at your love feast you see like a reef below the surface of the water they wait to shipwreck your faith they eat with you they look like you they may take the lord's supper with you Not necessarily church members, but in the church broadly as teachers. Nice people even. You see, Jesus prepares us alongside Jude. Look down to verse 18. You know, Jude is saying in verse 18, uh, 
they said to you, and he's referring to the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. That's a direct quote from Second Peter 3, verse 3. So the apostle Peter is actually warning us against this. And what did Jesus say in Matthew 7? Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Apostate false teachers will creep into the church and they won't get less as time goes on. So that's the first thing to notice, their subtlety. The next thing to notice about uh, these false teachers is their character. It's very interesting that in Jude, in this letter, he, he doesn't specify the heresy that is the specific false teaching as the way to spot the false teacher. He points mainly to their lifestyle, to their lifestyle, to, to their character. They are, verse 4, ungodly ungodly they are not towards God they are away from God and you look at verses 14 to 16 uh, uh, and you see this idea of ungodly fleshed out it's repeated time and time again you can read it in more detail uh, this afternoon ungodly ungodly ungodliness they commit deeds of ungodliness in ungodly ways these people are boasters The content of their preaching can seem okay at first, but what about the attitude of the preacher? It's not necessarily an obvious boasting. It's a boasting that requires discernment to detect. So their character is ungodly. Their character is also that they are antinomian. That is that they are against the law. They pervert grace and deny the lordship of Jesus. Verse 4. They are licentious. They use grace as an excuse to sin. They follow their ungodly passions, verse 18. So their lives are sensually driven. We see this idea repeated in verse 4, verses 10 to 12, and verses 16 to 18 in this letter. And that brings us to this point. There is often a close connection between false teachers and sexual immorality. Not always, but often. Remember that. A close connection between false teachers and sexual immorality. You see um, uh, Peter in 2 Peter. If you, if you read 2 Peter, it has a real reflection of, of Jude. There's great similarities. And there's this repeated theme. A connection between false teachers and sexual immorality. Three examples given from the Old Testament here in the letter of Jude are heavily to do with sexual immorality in verses 5 to 8. You can glance at them. He speaks of apostate Egypt and their unbelief in the wilderness. He speaks of apostate angels who didn't stay in their proper place but rebelled. In other words, they left their place and became uh, men and had sex with women. This is fleshed out in Genesis 6. And he speaks of the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, where just that word just as is used. That's why I think the angel's sin was sexual, because it's saying just as and likewise with the angels. They indulged in sexual immorality, immorality just as Sodom and Gomorrah did, specifically unnatural desire. So homosexual sin and desire is in view here. This is what the apostate false teachers are like, leaving their created position, rebelling against God's will, often with a manifestation of sexual immorality. 
Notice also they are characterised by subjectivism. They rely on dreams, it says verse 8, on subjective mystical impressions. And to note this, though the Gnostic heresy had not yet developed at this point when Jude wrote this, it formed in the same way. We have a secret knowledge, a knowledge that that lies within the self, uh, subjective feeling, and it defiles the physical body. In this self-autonomy, we see the ancient view of Gnosticism. You see, Gnosticism emphasises that a person's self-awareness, their subjective feeling, is different and more important than their physical body and that objective truth. And that there's a tension between our true selves and the bodies that we inhabit. So a man can identify as a woman even if he has male chromosomes and a male body. And so we change the habitation to suit our desires. Andrew Walker, in his book God and the Transgender Debate, says this. The concept that our gender can be different from our biological sex is a modern form of the old Gnostic idea. Friends, there is nothing new under the sun. And it's interesting to see these ancient heresies, they keep rising up in different ways. And the discerning Christian is able to see this, to see that connection. So, So here's what the false teachers are like. They're insiders who have crept in unnoticed who pervert grace and deny the lordship of Christ, and they are known by their ungodliness, their disobedience, their sexual immorality, and their subjectivism. And now let's just mention their judgment. Never forget the fate, friends. We must remember that if we will contend and not compromise, that judgment is coming for them as it did for others. There is no Escape. Jesus destroyed Egypt. He put rebellious angels in eternal chains. He torched Sodom and Gomorrah, serving as an example of the eternal fire to come. False teachers will not escape judgment. It says in the text that Jesus will come with 10,000 angels, with his holy ones, and will judge them with all the ungodly. We see that there in verses 14 and 15. You know what? I fear for the lost. Fear for the lost. But I fear even more for the apostate teachers who lead others astray. Who lead others astray. So there's the first three lessons from Jude. Number one, who must contend? We must all contend. Number two, what must we contend for? We must all contend for the faith truth doctrine three what must we can why must we contend we must contend because of false teachers who attack the faith so i just want to pause here for some particular applications on homosexuality and transgenderism there's a subtle and dangerous teaching that's crept into the church unnoticed as jude has said and which is a perversion of grace and a denial of the lordship of christ The Trojan horse has entered the evangelical city while we've been asleep and within the horse are wrong teachings on sexuality which undermine key doctrines of sin and grace and the doctrine of man. And it misappropriates the the gospel. It's been placarded in recent years in a US-based conference called Revoice. I don't know if any of you have heard of it. But Revoice, it was an attempt to make a way for men and women to affirm both their 
homosexual identity and the Christian faith. faith. And so gay Christianity was promoted at this event. This was from teachers within the church. But a Christian, a Christian is called. A Christian is beloved. A Christian is kept by God. And so a Christian takes his or her identity from Christ, not any sexual orientation, so that to identify as a gay or LGBTQ Christian is an oxymoron because it uses an unholy, sinful desire as an adjective to describe the person who is in the second person of the Holy Trinity, prefixing it with sin that Christ hung on that tree for, gay Christian. So the issue becomes clearer. This is about how we understand sin, friends, and the doctrine of man. And it's also how we understand the power of regenerating grace and the way that it works in the life of a believer in union with Christ. You see, gospel doctrines are at stake here. It does no one any good to compromise here with the gay Christian theology. If you are in Christ, you are not a gay or trans Christian. You are Christian. You're Christian. Christ defines you, not your sin. His spirit indwells you. Jesus is your Lord and master, not sexual sin. And so here is the power then to overcome as a person who who experiences same-sex attraction, who experiences transgender impulses, who, who experiences any kind of sin. Here is the power to overcome. As you repent from what, from what you were and you embrace what you are in union with Christ. You're free in Christ. Here's hope for everyone. We all need Christ. We're all sinners. Heterosexual sinners, homosexual sinners, we're all sinners. We need Christ. We've got to get it right. And so we must all contend for the faith because... There are erroneous doctrines here in this Trojan horse. So lessons from Jude. We must all contend, number one. We must all contend for the faith, number two. And three, we must all contend against false teachers who attack that faith. At the same time, it's the sacred duty of churches to be compassionate towards all those whom the false teachers have deceived. And so how do we contend? And that's lesson four and the final point. And the how are split into two parts. The first part, the how we contend, is we need to keep ourselves in the love of God. We need to watch ourselves. We, we need to contend with false teachers. We need to watch ourselves. Just, just look um, at verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit... Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. We need to keep ourselves in the love of God. That's how we will contend with false teachers, so we won't compromise with their false teaching. Keep yourself in the love of God. Can can you lose your salvation? No, because if you are truly saved, you will keep yourself in the love of God. How will you do this? Well, there are three in words here that teach us how we keep ourselves in the love of God. They are building, praying, and waiting surrounding that that command there. Building ourselves up in the most holy faith there is the building. So growing our knowledge of the gospel, growing in our 
knowledge of the scriptures, growing in our knowledge of the scriptures, particularly in these key areas of the sexuality. It's interesting that the Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper uh, said once that the fundamental contrast has always been, still is and will be until the end, Christianity and paganism. Okay, And so as we build ourselves up in the most holy faith in these areas of sexuality, it's important for us to notice when we examine texts like Leviticus 18 that speaks about homosexuality, it handles the sin of homosexuality as part of a group of pagan practices. If you read Leviticus 18, you can do it this afternoon, verse 22 and surrounding, it places homosexuality within a list of pagan ethics, one that includes a total rejection of God's creation design. For instance, killing one's children as opposed to caring for them, having sex with a member of the same sex as opposed to one's spouse, and pursuing sex with an animal as opposed to ruling over the beasts. You see, that all opposes the teaching of Genesis 1 and 2. Transgenderism is also rooted in paganism. That is, the truth of binary sexes is a central facet of sex and sexuality in God's creation. Male and female, he made them. Binary sexes, fixed. Transgender ideology might be new in our culture, but it is in fact ancient paganism. The Bible speaks directly to the instinct to take on a personal identity that does not correspond with one's sex and, and names that as sin. Deuteronomy 22 verse 5 addresses the issue. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. We might call this transvestitism, which is under that umbrella term of transgenderism, but the exchanging of a sexual identity is there, you see. This was associated with pagan prostitution in the temple. So it goes against God's creation design. So you see what, what he, we're getting at here, is God is very concerned that we maintain creation design after the fall. And, and after the fall, there's been a perversion of that. And so that these practices are actually pagan practices that go against Christian practices. Deuteronomy 22, verse 5, speaks a bigger matter than fashion, if you like, in the ancient northeast. It, 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 near East, it, 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 it fo focuses on maintaining, not mixing the natural order of things. So it speaks of not mixing seeds, not mixing donkeys and oxen, not mixing wolves. You're not to confuse the natural order. You're not to confuse creation design. And the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, of course, talks about this with regards to hair lengths and all of this, but what he's getting at is natural creation distinctions should be maintained and the man should look like a man and the woman should look like a woman and so on. So a, a sexual paganism, the anti-wisdom of Satan, that which goes against God's wise creation design is actually at the heart of homosexuality and the transgender agenda. But we will be able to contend against false teaching on the topic by keeping ourselves in the love of God through building ourselves up in the most holy faith. So we need to know our Bibles, friends. We need to know how deep-rooted these things are, how they're connected to creation, how good it is that God's creation design is preserved. And so we need to be building our faith with sound doctrine in the area of sexuality. That's building. 
This is how we keep ourselves in the love of God, building. Next, praying, praying, praying in the spirit with this childlike affection in the heart that cries out, Abba, Father, as we intercede, as we persist, as we learn to plead with God. Our minds are on his word and and then we gain a security in his love and a confidence in his word as we pray in the spirit, the spirit who is the spirit of adoption, who is the spirit of love who is the author of the word. And we keep ourselves in the love of God by praying in the spirit. How can then we not contend? Building, praying, and then finally waiting, waiting, waiting for the mercy of our crucified and risen and returning Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, do you, do you live with that waiting? Do you live with eager anticipation in the dark days that surround that Christ is coming and we're obeying him? And we're being found in him. But we know this one thing. When he comes, he's going to be merciful to me. He's going to be merciful to me. Knowing this mercy to come, you see, keeps me in the love of God. It ends well for the Christian. And so I can contend. I will contend. I must contend. Friends, brothers and sisters, contending means living out what we believe. So we need to teach and we need to model biblical sexuality in our homes and churches. And so, as I think I mentioned even in uh, the, the sermon the other week from Matthew 19, so we present a joyful counterculture to a crumbling secular culture that's embraced the pagan anti-wisdom of the age. And then the questions they're going to ask you is going to open the door that you can bring them God's good design in the word and you can bring them to the gospel. It's dangerous, but you've got nothing to fear. Why? Because you are called. Because you are beloved. Because you are kept and because you are blessed. And isn't there that wonderful verse that we read so often as a benediction down in verse, verses 24 and 25? Now to him who is able, he's powerful, he's able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in his presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy to the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. What a verse that is. This is how you contend. By keeping yourself in the love of God, building, praying, waiting, so that from beginning to end of this letter, you see at the beginning, you see at the end of your contending, you're secure. It's like the beginning of this letter and the end, there's these pillars that are keeping you secure. You need not fear. It ends well for you. So that's how we contend. The how is by keeping ourselves in the love of God, by building and praying and waiting but we also contend by extending mercy that's the second part of how we contend as you've been loved friends if you're a christian as you've been shown mercy by god you must extend mercy you must extend mercy Uh, you must love others apostate false teachers lead people astray Uh, jesus excoriated the Pharisees who led people astray. Like he was tough on them. Blind guides, sons of the devil. But there were others he was gentler with, those who maybe were deceived by them, the sinners, the tax collectors, and, uh, and maybe some uh, immature Christians uh, even, immature believers. So what it is, is what we need 
as we extend mercy is we need different courses for different horses. Isn't the saying different horses for different courses? I'm saying different courses of mercy for different horses. We need pastoral wisdom here. There is a difference between the ideology and the activists of the LGBTQ agenda out there and those who have been caught in the net. To ones caught in doubt. Look at verse 22. Have mercy on those who doubt. To ones caught in doubt by false teachings, we show, we show a mercy, we show a gentleness. You don't break a bruised reed. Maybe they're experiencing some same-sex attraction, maybe some impulses. Young people uh, experience all sorts of things as they go through puberty. Now they've got a whole culture around them telling them it's this, you're that, you're that, follow, come with us. Yeah, But they're experiencing all sorts of odd things and... And they hear biblical teaching and they hear that the impulse of sin is sinful uh, and they're confused. And maybe you need to put the arm around the shoulder and you need to walk alongside them and show mercy to those doubters. There are others, verse 22, that need to be snatched from the fire. It's urgent. They need a violent wrench out of a lifestyle they're beginning to embrace. And then there are some to whom we show mercy with fear. Verse 22, they're entrenched in sin. The garment is stained with flesh and still we extend mercy. But we need to be aware that we don't become soiled with their sin as we get close. You know what it's like when you get into a a counselling, deep counselling relationship with someone who's entrenched in sin. You can start to compromise with it because you get affected by them. and, uh, And yet we need to be like Jesus who when he touched the leper, the leper was cleansed. Jesus was not affected by that. Love for those who are caught in sin does not exclude hatred for the corruption of that sin. So friends, we've got to have a deep concern that we should not be led astray by false teachers and an extraordinary sense of the mercy and love of Christ to us so that we extend it to others. So there it is. Who must contend? We must all contend. Number two, what must we contend for? We must all contend for the faith. Number three, Why must we contend? Because of false teachers and their teaching. And number four, how must we contend? We must first keep ourselves in the love of God by building, praying and waiting. And secondly, we must extend extend mercy even as we've been shown mercy. And so we contend and we show compassion. To do this, you need to know the scriptures, friends. You need to know the faith that you contend for. You need to be people of prayer. You need to keep your own life on track in view of Christ's coming knowing that you've received mercy you must extend mercy but you need different courses of mercy for different horses that are in trouble some are confused and need the gentler approach some are about to burn to death and need a violent wrench and some are deeply deeply entrenched and lost in sin and so down you go hating the sin but intent on affecting them with grace so friends In conclusion, there is a war against God and against his people. And there is a Trojan horse filled with doctrinal error in the evangelical city. Jude gives us some lessons here of how to contend. But remember this. Jesus has died to purchase his bride. He is risen and he is interceding for her at the right hand of the father 
and he will return to bring her home. He will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. So for a moment, forget the Trojan horse because Jesus is coming on a white horse. He is called the word of God. His eyes will be a flame. There will be a sword coming from his mouth. Wrath for his enemies. Victory for his bride. And on his robe and on his thigh is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is our Jesus. Jesus wins. And so we worship him. And meanwhile, we contend for the faith all the way to heaven. Let's pray. Father, we do indeed thank you for your word, all of your word, and this particular word in uh, the letter of Jude. I pray now that you would help us in these uh, various ways to contend for the faith, that we would do it in the way that you prescribe according to your word. Strengthen us, I pray, uh, for the glory of Christ and for the good of the church and for the good of the lost and those who are to be gathered in in the days to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.